is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robertian Brokampshin, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. This week, all anyone can talk about is inflation, and that's us too. All that and Bitcoin on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. What's everyone's aberration fixation causing consternation and an inflammation of economist contemplation as we consult the CPI fluctuations and supply chain limitations for causation? It's inflation. But what does that mean for your allocation and financial vexation? Will it all result in devastation? Calm your palpitations because bro is here with his ruminations. Woo! One take! <laughs> yes! <laughs> I have a few sometimes embarrassingly simple questions about inflation, and luckily I have a bro to deliver me some answers. Last week, inflation concerns hit a fever pitch as the Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that the consumer price index rose 6.2% in October. Now, let's be clear, that's 6.2% compared to the previous year, not 6.2% over the month. But this is still the largest rise in three decades. Side note, the older I get, the less outrageous three decades sounds. Like, the 90s were not that long ago. I mean, tell me something hasn't happened since the 70s, and I'm going to sit up. But the 90s? I mean... Oh, man. Bro, is Nirvana considered oldies now? I sure as helicopter hope not. Oh, jeez. Anyway, all right. I have questions. I can depend on you, bro, for answers. So let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Remember how I said some of the questions were going to be a bit embarrassing? So um, what is inflation? (laughs) Well, inflation basically is the rise in the prices of goods and services offered for sale. Now, given that there are hundreds of millions of things and services you can buy nowadays, measuring it can be a little challenging and, frankly, somewhat debatable. The federal government attempts to measure inflation via two primary gauges, which then can be further parsed if you want to. You mentioned the consumer price index, um, which actually comes in a few flavors, but the figure most commonly cited is the CPI for urban Americans, known as the CPIU, which covers about 93% of the U.S. population. It's calculated each month after the prices of approximately 80,000 items are collected via surveys. So just imagine that. It's someone's job out there to call up businesses and find out how much they're charging for things. Um, The other primary measure of inflation is the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, also known as the PCE. Uh, And that's actually not as high these days. It comes in at 4.4% over the previous 12 months. The Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge, which is the core PCE, which strips out food and energy, climbed 3.6% over the past year. Now, generally, the CPI is going to be higher than the PCE for several reasons. One is that the PCE includes more rural areas, um, and then there are different weightings that each measure gives. So, for example, the CPI um, has a higher weighting towards housing, uh, and the PCE has a higher weighting toward uh, medical care. But by however you measure it, prices are definitely going up. Okay, we haven't really been scared about inflation for a while, so why now? Well, economists will tell you that inflation occurs for many reasons, but the primary cause is too much money chasing too few goods. So if you think back to a year and more ago when the global economy was partially shut down due to the pandemic panic, many factories were closed, unemployment skyrocketed, toilet paper was scarce, um, this would have led to a worldwide depression if governments didn't step up to take the place of paychecks. Uncle Sam alone provided more than $3 trillion of stimulus. Um, That government intervention boosted bank accounts at a time when people were stuck at home with really much fewer things to spend money on. I personally 
went from filling my car's gas tank once a week before the pandemic to maybe once every six to eight weeks during the shutdown. Now the economy has opened up again and people are spending like mad, but factories haven't yet caught up. Uh, U.S. personal spending is now reached over $16 trillion, an all-time high. So consider this quote from a recent CNN Money article. There are more than 2 billion instances of a product being out of stock online across 18 ca categories tracked in October by Adobe Analytics, according to a new report. That's up 33% over the same month a year ago and 325% since October of 2019. So when a bunch of money is chasing scarce goods, businesses raise their prices. I feel nowadays, if you can't blame seasonal allergies, then you can blame the supply chain. So <laughs> what more can you tell me about seasonal allergies role in all this? I mean, the supply chain. I mean, the supply chain. <laughs> okay. uh, yes. Well, so it really is the supply chain. And there are a lot of moving parts, literally and figuratively, to getting a product from conception to creation, distribution, and consumption. But let's take vehicles as an example. The typical car has 30,000 parts. You know, those parts all start out as raw materials somewhere, and then they need to be transported to a factory and turned into parts, which then get sent to assembly plants, plants and turned into a car. Then the car has to be transported to a dealership. I mean, this process involves tens of thousands of people across multiple countries. Any disruption to that supply chain has ripple effects throughout the whole process. Uh, and the supply chain does involve both parts and people. Uh, Reuters recently reported that Toyota, which is the largest seller of cars in the world, hopes to restart production in December in their Japan plants that has been curtailed due to COVID-19 outbreaks in factories in Vietnam and Malaysia. Uh, and then you have all the container ships waiting off coast, just twiddling their propellers because they can't offload their goods, partially due to shortage of dock workers and truck drivers. Uh, the issue is really, despite the robust recovery over the past year, the US labor force is still more than 3 million workers below the level at the end of 2019. You add in significantly reduced immigration, and you can understand why many American businesses are struggling to find workers, which means they have to increase their pay to attract employees, and those higher costs get passed along to consumers in the form of higher prices. So what are the biggest drivers, goods-wise, of current inflation? Is everything more expensive, or are some things really driving it here? Some things are definitely more expensive than others. So the biggest items in the recent consumer price index our gas up 50%, car rentals 39%, both used cars and hotels are up 26%, beef 20%, and furniture and bedding at 12%. However, not all items are seeing such large price increases. In fact, many items, including airfares, prescription drugs, and smartphones, are actually cheaper than they were a year ago. Uh, and while food prices overall rose 5.3%, many items such as Cheese, lettuce, frankfurters have experienced price declines. And yes, the CPI report does have that level of detail. I think it's also important to note that these increases are just compared to where prices were in October of 2020. It doesn't necessarily mean that prices are now at all-time highs for all items. So, for example, a gallon of gas and a gallon of milk were both more expensive in 2008 and in the early 2010s than they are today. So how bad can it get? Like I, I have visions of like wheelbarrows of, you know, currency can't buy, a, you know, like really, if you think of like countries that are really, really um, taken over by inflation. How, how bad could it get for us? Well, I, I, let's start with history. 
And uh, in the United States, the worst bout of inflation over the past century was the nine years from 1973 to 1981, during which inflation averaged 9% a year and got as high as over 13%. And there were many causes for that string of high-costing years, but one was an oil embargo from OPEC in retaliation for American support of Israel. Now, while tensions aren't as high today, rising oil prices can be traced at least partially to geopolitical tensions. OPEC, along with other uh, oil-producing countries such as Russia, are limiting production, and they're they're resisting entreaties from the U.S., Japan, and India to pump more oil. Um, I don't think we'll see the inflation we saw in the 70s, and certainly not the hyperinflation of like Weimar Germany, where they really were uh, pushing around wheelbarrows of money. Um, so hopefully things won't get that bad as they were 50 years ago. How do we combat inflation? And by we, I mean the Fed and I assume a few other someones in the federal government, they'd stay up late fretting about this. Yeah. So the federal government is taking steps to ease the supply chain bottlenecks at places such as ports. Uh, the White House has actually established a supply chain disruptions task force. Um, they even have a blog. And the Biden administration claims that many of the provisions in the Build Back better plan will alleviate some inflationary pressures caused by outdated infrastructure. We shall see. Um, as for the Fed, at the start of the virus crisis in the winter of 2020, they took all kinds of drastic steps. They, they reduced the Fed funds rate to near zero, uh, and they've been purchasing more than $100 billion worth of bonds and mortgage-backed securities every month. And what that does is it increases the demand for bonds, which puts downward pressure on interest rates. However, beginning this month, the Fed will begin reducing, or tapering as they say, the bond purchases. It is not yet committed to when it will outright raise rates, uh, but a fun little site called the CME FedWatch tool predicts that the most likely time frame is probably next summer. Higher rates cool off the economy, which can reduce demand and thus inflation. Significantly higher rates can put the economy in a recession, which is what happened in 1981 with then Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Um, and it worked. They set the Fed funds rate over 19%. Yield on the 10-year Treasury was almost 16%. Um, set the, the country into a recession, and it brought down inflation, but at the cost of some temporary pain. So you talked about in Japan, they can't build cars because of parts in Vietnam. And so it sounds like it's not just America that's suffering, even though as Americans, we really only care about our own suffering. Let's be honest. <laughs> so, but I, 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 this sounds like it's a global problem. It is because what happened in the, the pandemic and the resulting supply chain issues happened everywhere around the globe. So the median inflation rate of the 185 countries tracked by tradingeconomics.com is 4.3%. So the current 6.2% in the U.S. is higher than most other countries. If that makes you feel bad, just be thankful you're not in any of the countries experiencing hyperinflation, including Iran, which has an inflation rate of 39%, Argentina, 52%, Lebanon, 144%, and the winner is Venezuela, an inflation rate of 1,946%. Oof. Wow, that's mind-boggling. Yes. And we're freaking yeah. out over 6%. Yes, exactly. Wow. All right, so what can you do to protect your money, your moolah, your nest egg? I don't know, all of it. All of it, the whole kit and caboodle. The whole kit and caboodle. Uh, so inflation is caused by businesses charging higher prices. So one way to benefit is to own businesses, which you can do by buying shares of stock. As Wharton Business School professor Jeremy Siegel has established in his research, including his classic book, one of my favorite, Stocks for the Long Run, 
Stocks have provided an after inflation, six and a half to seven percent per year over most longer holding periods. In fact, this figure has come to be known as Siegel's constant. However, in the short term, inflation can weigh on stocks, especially if it prompts a spike in interest rates, which then slows down the economy. So let's look back at that 1973 to 1981 period and see how various assets performed. So remember, during that period, inflation averaged 9% a year. Let's look at, look at fixed income. Cash earned 8% a year, intermediate government bonds 6%, long-term government bonds 3%. So all of those fixed income categories underperformed inflation, so you lost purchasing power, and longer-term bonds did worse. Nowadays, we have something called inflation-protected bonds. They didn't have those back then. And those are definitely doing better nowadays. Over the last year, Treasury inflation-protected securities have earned about 9%, as opposed to uh, actually a small loss for the total bond market. And then there's the 7.12% you can now earn on I-bonds, uh, a topic we talked about last week. Now, looking at stocks, how did they do from 1973 to 1981? Actually, it was kind of mixed. Inflation was 9% a year. S&P 500, 5% a year. So it actually underperformed inflation 4% a year over that period. But small cap stocks, 19% a year. Real estate investment trusts, 12% a year. So it's mixed. It, I certainly think that for the investors out there, it makes sense to consider whether the companies you own will be able to pass along higher prices without reducing profits. Uh, a couple of other assets that you may hear about when inflation gets brought up. Uh, commodities can do well during spikes of inflation, and that's certainly been the case this year. Commodities up are about 60%. But over the long term, the performance of commodity, commodities is pretty much below the stock market and even and much more volatile. Perhaps surprisingly, the asset that some people believe to be the best inflation hedge, namely gold, is actually down 10% since August of 2020 and close to the price it was a decade ago. So I don't know if I told everyone that I had exactly 10 questions to ask you, but we're on number nine here. So we're in the home stretch. And this question is, is this really all that serious? So a lot of the comments, for example, in the Washington Post articles I've been reading about this, people are like, big whoop, I'm paying six bucks for $100 worth of groceries last year. Um, and Biden is saying this is all temporary anyway. So how serious should I take this? Uh, well, I would say no one likes to pay higher prices, of course, and it certainly depends on what you're buying, you know, your particular basket of goods in economic speak. Um, for example, if you do a lot of driving, you're certainly feeling inflation more than someone who works from home. Uh, and it can certainly be a challenge for lower income families uh, whose incomes aren't keeping up. And that seems to be the case. Pay is up 4.9% over the past year, but that is less than the 6.2% for the CPI. The big question is, will prices just keep rising at the current rate or worse? And the answer is, of course, no one can say for sure, but the Federal Reserve believes that the factors that are currently driving up prices are mostly temporary. I'm no economist, uh, but I would say that my current feeling about it all was summarized in a recent article by Colin Roche of Disciplined Funds, who writes the Pragmatic Capitalist blog. Uh, and he explained why he believes the current level of higher inflation will last until maybe around mid-2022, but then come back down. Essentially, he argues that the same forces that kept inflation in check before the pandemic will pretty much remain in force. So four things that he thinks will keep inflation down long term. Number one is demographics. When you have an aging population and a declining population, that puts downward pressure on aggregate demand. 
technological innovations, which are inherently deflationary. Um, there's inequality in our economy and less money in the hands of those with a higher propensity to consume means lower demand. And then there's globalization, and that puts downward pressure on domestic wages and prices. So hopefully, a year or so from now, we won't be so consumed by this whole inflation consternation. All right. And my 10th and final question is, what is a question a really smart person would have asked you that I didn't? Uh, well, just to make it clear, you are very smart. I, eh, I have my moments. Yeah. Uh, so well, that question might be, how else does inflation affect my finances? And one answer is that Uncle Sam uses inflation figures to determine all kinds of limits, payments, and, and tax-related numbers. So, for example, many numbers related to Social Security get adjusted annually based on inflation. So beneficiaries receive a cost of living adjustment each year. And in 2022, those checks will be 5.9% higher, the biggest upward adjustment in 40 years. Uh, as for people who are still working, the amount of income subject to Social Security taxes gets adjusted each year. And for 2022, that figure is up to $147,000. That's an increase from $142,800 in 2021. Uh, the biggest punch in the gut for retirees is next year's premiums for Part B of Medicare, which are going up 14.5% based partially on inflation, but also on other factors such as higher use of healthcare services. There are plenty of other examples of how Uncle Sam adjusts for inflation. Uh, the amount of income needed to move into the next tax bracket will also be higher in 2022. And the contribution limits to 401ks and 403bs are increasing by $1,000. So when it comes to how inflation affects various government-related figures, it's kind of a mixed bag. All right, bro. That was all my questions for this week anyway. We'll see. We'll see if I come up with some more for later. But thanks. You're always the best. It's time for Answers Answers. Normally, Allison asks the question and I provide the answer. But this time, I'm going to ask the question and someone way more qualified is going to provide the answer. And that someone is Aaron Bush, an advisor here at The Motley Fool who works on our Rule Breakers, Blast Off, and Platinum services. Welcome, Aaron, and thanks for joining us. Hey, bro. Thanks for having me. So the last time you were on our show was almost exactly four years ago, and you helped us learn more about Bitcoin. And we've asked you back because we have a listener question about Bitcoin, and it comes from Zafan, and here it is. Roughly 5% of my diversified portfolio is in Bitcoin, held on a reputable, reputable exchange, Coinbase. Even though the exchange is big and reputable, I am still worried about either the exchange or my account getting hacked and my Bitcoin holding going to zero. Now that a futures-based Bitcoin ETF exists, I'm wondering if it is a good idea to switch my Bitcoin to the ETF. No one could hack my ETF or the underlying futures contracts, right? Uh, would the hack of a large exchange create some sort of counterparty risk to the futures holdings? And finally, will the Bitcoin futures ETF closely track the price performance of Bitcoin over the long term? So Aaron, what do you think? All right. So there's a lot of good questions in there. And let me unpack that a little bit, starting with a couple notes on hacking risk for those listening. The risk with hacking um, regarding crypto has almost always centered around exchanges. For example, Bitcoin itself has never been hacked, but exchanges that pool money together in a centralized way to facilitate everyone else's trades have. So it's generally considered best practice to not hold money 
on exchanges. Um, something like Coinbase is more of an exception because the security team is first rate. It's designed for professional custody and they offer um, partial crime insurance too, if Coinbase were to ever be breached and funds were stolen. But at the end of the end of the day, it's still is a trusted third party, which is why many of the the OG cypherpunks recommend that people <laughs> should own their own private keys. And, and private keys are what give you access and control over the crypto you own. So, um, you know, there, there's, you know, we could dig into some rabbit holes there, but at a high level, many people are proponents of hardware wallets, which are sort of like USB sticks. Um, many people use software wallets, which are things like browser plugins. And some people have their assets um, spread around in different places to kind of mitigate the risk of any one, um, any one place getting put in, put in jeopardy. So really there is a plethora of options out there and people can take whatever level of risk and personal responsibility they want. I do think that for most people though, who are just looking to buy and hold something like Coinbase truly is a great option. Um, but it's not necessarily for everyone, depending on how you want to use crypto and how in control you want to be of your own private keys. So those are just a couple things to keep in mind, um, regarding the risk of security. Um, as for the BT, the Bitcoin ETF question, my stance uh, for a while has has been that people who want to buy and hold Bitcoin for the long term should own actual Bitcoin, um, not some tracking entity like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or a futures ETF. The problem with a futures ETF is less to do with Bitcoin, actually, and more to do with the fundamentals of how a futures ETF works. And so um, I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit, and then you can follow up with anything that, that doesn't make sense. Um, so for those who are not in the weeds of finance, a futures contract is the obligation to buy or sell an asset at a later date at an agreed upon price. So um, really long story short here, a futures ETF doesn't actually own the underlying asset. In this case, the Bitcoin futures ETF doesn't actually own Bitcoin. It's a derivative that owns contracts of the asset that enables future trading of it. So how it often works is that every month, the fund rotates out of the current futures contracts that it holds, um, sells those, and then buys new ones. And that rotation of futures contracts comes with a unique type of cost. If the futures contracts are trading above the spot price, as is typically the case with Bitcoin, then the market is in what's known as contango. And contango uh, is a hidden cost on top of the, the normal ETF fee that can chip away 5 to 10% or more of the ETF's value through the process of rolling contracts, that transaction that takes place over any given year. So, um, if you piece that together, if Bitcoin stays flat, you'll actually end up losing money through that process of just fees and um, um, the kind of arbitrage working against you as you know the futures get traded month to month. And we see this play out in other futures ETFs like the VXX, which is a futures ETF on the VIX, the volatility index. So that's that's something that's super financy, but something to be aware of because it is important when you own these things. Um, also, and I don't know the specific case with the Bitcoin ETF that got approved, but typically futures ETFs can't hold 100% of their position in futures. They usually target um, somewhere around 85%, I believe, which creates even more lag comparing to owning the actual underlying asset, especially if you think that that asset's going to go up quite a bit. So really... 
these future, you know, these future ETFs maybe make sense for certain types of traders, but they don't really make good sense for buy and hold investors. And this ETF is allowed to exist because it doesn't hold Bitcoin. Um, I do think at some point we will actually see a spot Bitcoin ETF uh, that actually, you know, represents like true ownership of Bitcoin. Um, and that would make a lot more sense for people to own, especially in accounts like IRAs and 401ks. But the SEC has not been doing a great job of getting something like that out the door. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But really, my bottom line of all of this is that it's generally um, better to own the actual crypto and you can take steps to make it secure for yourself. It's not, it's not as hard as it may seem. Yeah, that futures ETF is offered by ProShares. The symbol is B-I-T-O. And it gathered over a billion dollars in assets in the first two days. So a lot of interest in it. Um, but I looked at the, the contents of the portfolio, at least according to Morningstar, and only half of it is futures contracts and the other half is cash. Because as you mm. pointed out, it can't be completely in the contracts. Uh, and a Wall Street Journal article uh, quoted the CEO of Bitwise, which was trying to do a, a, a Bitcoin ETF. And then they backed off because the costs were too high as saying that Contango situation can cost you 5 to 10% a year in return. So you really are, uh, the futures contract is not going to give you the same price performance as Bitcoin. No. And that contango, it adds up. So um, if you look at like the volatility index, for example, and typically volatility is you know, a metric that mean reverts over time. It goes up, it goes down, um, but you know, it typically reverts to the mean. So over the span of a decade, you could end up at the same place that you started, um, you know, price-wise for the volatility index. But the futures of ETF of that, because of Contango losing five to ten percent of its value every year, it's going to be down ninety-five percent or so. Um, and so, you know, that's not to say exactly that will happen with Bitcoin. Um, you know, if Bitcoin goes up then this futures ETF over a long period of time could still marginally go up too. But you really have, when you have 5 to 10% Contango working against you on top of just like a normal ETF feed, that's a pretty, pretty high hurdle of returns that you need to see from the underlying asset to be worth your time. So one last question here. The segment preceding this segment, we talked a good bit about inflation. What's your take on whether Bitcoin is a good inflation hedge? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that hedge is a strong word because it implies a direct mathematically proven correlation. And I don't think that Bitcoin has proven a direct correlated ability to technically hedge inflation. It's been too volatile, honestly, to be correlated with much of anything or a hedge of much <laughs> of anything. Um, that said, it does have qualities, namely the scarcity of its tokens that will likely make it less inflationary than fiat currencies that are always printing new money. Um, and from that lens, maybe it's hedge-like, but it's not designed to be a hedge and likely won't serve exactly like one. I actually had a similar conversation with David Gardner recently. And my my oversimplistic take that you know the academics out there may not like is it really is just that the best hedge against inflation is to own things that go up a lot. Uh, traditionally, that's been to own companies that can raise their prices or real estate that can raise their rent. Um, these entities beat inflation uh, because of more fundamental microeconomic reasons. And I actually do think the same can go for crypto. All cryptocurrencies work differently. So do your own due diligence on that. Um, but if you think that Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency 
will perform well based on its fundamentals, it probably will help you beat inflation. However, I, I would not recommend owning it purely to hedge inflation. That is not what it's for or how it'll probably work. Sounds good. I really appreciate you taking the time to help us out here, Aaron. Of course. I, I can't believe it's been four years, but I'm, I'm happy that we went full circle on Bitcoin. So thanks it's, for having me. And there were also the years that you and I sat right next to each other at Full HQ. So I apologize for all the dancing and air drumming you had to put up uh, with during that time. You were a great coworker. I, <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> all righty, Aaron. Take care. All right. Thanks, Ralph. Well, that's the show. We're taking next week off because of Thanksgiving. And so should you. But we'll be back on the 30th when Bro interviews Michael Kitsis, who is probably the second most interesting financial planning wonk I've ever heard speak. So it should be a good show. As always, this show is edited rain or shiningly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, the first most interesting financial planning wonk I've ever heard speak. I thought I'm you were Alice- talking about Susie <laughs> No, it's you, you big dummy. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Everybody.